0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And hopefully you've listened to my podcast just previous, which announces this year's fun drive and the updated paperback edition of my novel, The Genesis Generation. And since today is the first day of that pledge drive, I have no other news to report other than what is in that podcast, number 438. Now, as has been pointed out to me in various and sundry forums, it's been a couple of months now since we have heard from Terrence McKenna. So I dug around a little bit, and I think that I've come up with something that we haven't yet listened to here in the Salon. However, parts of this multi-day workshop may have been sent to me by more than one person, So, if you think that you heard part of this before, well, maybe you have. But the part that I'm going to play right now isn't something that I can remember hearing before, uh, even though some of the stories and topics are familiar. Now, just to set the scene a little, this talk took place over 20 years ago, in June of 1994. And some of the major events that had taken place just the month before included the opening of the Channel Tunnel between the UK and the continent, and the inauguration of Nelson Mandela as president of South Africa. So let's join Terrence and a few friends now and find out what was on his mind back then. Which is just
1: simply an excuse to get together to talk about uh, the state of the world, what's hot, what's not, what's interesting, what's coming, what's going. Um... These seem to be the things on everybody's mind. There's a palpable acceleration of uh, historical novelty. You don't have to be a weatherman to see which way the wind is blowing, I think. Uh, the question is, you know, what, there's growing consensus that we have managed ourselves into a situation where Any path out is going to be fairly dramatic and transforming. And then the question is, how dramatic, how transforming? Uh, Can it be managed? Is it a human-initiated crisis? And can it therefore be managed by human uh, management strategies? Or are, are we no more than the ant before the hurricane? and this just in the warp and woof of the evolution of the planet, we have come now to a period of dissolution and chaotic recasting. Uh, I'm interested personally in, um, well, I guess all, in a way, all my interests lead back to history, to the human experience on the planet, which I take to be an extraordinarily uh, peculiar variant on nature, that something very unusual has lodged itself in this particular species of higher primate. And uh, through technology, through an ability to create omni-adaptable responses to the changing environment, we have ratcheted ourselves into a place of planetary domination to the point where now all that stands between us and some kind of angelic completion of some sort is the dark side of ourselves and the unpaid bills of the historical process. Um, I've been here for ten days, and there's been a lot of talk already under the bridge. In terms of anything we might say to each other or take away from these meetings, um, I, I am a resolute optimist of a very complicated sort. And it troubles me that I have to say of a very complicated sort, because I just always thought of myself as an optimist. But I realize, listening to people play back what they imagine they've heard me say, that it comes off as scary to some people Uh, because I'm not a conservative of any sort. I don't think very much of what we have created is going to survive the, the keyhole through which we must pass to get to a sane world beyond the contradictions of of a dwindling environment and a rapacious economic system and enormous power concentrated in the hands of a few, enormous misery experienced by vast numbers of people. Because my faith, based on, well, basically just a lifetime of edge running, living in marginal societies, Uh, taking psychedelic drugs, spending time with Aboriginal people, staying out of America during some of its more dramatic convulsions. All that has led to the conclusion for me that the thing we are caught up in is not our fault, nor can it be managed by goodwill. And since there doesn't seem to be much, that's sort of a moot question anyway. Uh, the thing that we are caught up in is what we have been caught up in for a very long time. Uh, the oldest skeletons of Homo sapiens sapien, the double-thinking hominid, are 100,000 years old. They didn't spring from nowhere. Probably Homo sapiens sapien is hundred and fifty to 200,000 years old uh, on this planet. And uh, in us, nature has decided to take a very dramatic set of chances. And though the, uh, the uh, results are not in, essentially it appears that it's going to come out in the next couple of decades... I think that nature is the great source of optimism in all of this. That history, far from being um, the harbinger of extinction and catastrophe, as it's interpreted by linear empirical thinkers, is instead a slow dawning of a transcendental possibility that, you know, cast its light over essentially at least a million years of human becoming, and that from the very beginning of the stirrings of self-reflection, the observation of the rising of setting of stars on the horizon, the observation that, you know, sex is linked to procreation, the dimmest, dimmest awareness in our species has been pointed toward the revelation of a a something, a something that is in the biology of the planet. And history, as we have experienced it since the fall of Rome, an endless ebb and flow of dynastic rulership, expanded technological capability, expanded coding systems, so forth and so on, and history, as we have experienced it since, say, 1900, an ever-expanding electromagnetic sphere of information transfer, an ever-more-dramatic collapse of distances and boundaries. History is not simply the record of the random walk of... Uh, a higher animal it is in fact uh, the thing which we have been I think most uh, taught to suspect which is it is the inner penetration of the humdrum of biology with something extra dimensional transcendental if you wish even godlike if you wish although I don't go that far It's not, to my mind, we're not talking about the God who hung the stars like lamps in heaven, as Milton said. We're talking about the secret agenda of bios on the planet. That it is complete hubris to believe that you can escape from uh, the yoke of nature, the domain of natural constraints. It can't happen. What is happening to us is devastating to be sure, dramatic, uh, possibly unique in the history of the planet, but not unnatural or unexpected. It is simply the consequence of intelligence reaching a certain level of mastery over its environment and the stuff of itself. And, um, you know, we will talk about all this in high detail or as much as we can over the course of the, of the meetings. Um, what I just want to say this evening to sort of set the stage, and those of you who've read my books will recognize the theme, I, the reason I believe that we have reached an end to the historical journey is because now the only metaphors which make any sense are the metaphors that lie outside of history. Um, The whole of the 20th century can be understood as an enormous turning in the mind of Western civilization toward the archaic, toward the pre historical. And we who have grown up, you know, visiting the Hall of Dinosaurs at the American Museum of Natural History and so forth, this is not such a big deal for us. But this dimension to our lives is very new and very modern. Uh, Bishop Usser believed that the world was created in 4004 BC. That was a reasonable Opinion to be held by a member of the British Intelligentsia 150 years ago When the cave paintings at Lascaux were uh, discovered by shepherds in the south of France, they brought the great men from the academies at Paris to view these things And they assured their discoverers that they had doubtless been done by members of the Grand Army of Napoleon who had overwintered there in the winter of 1812. The idea that these paintings could have been done 25,000 years ago by human beings was utterly inconceivable. The idea that the Earth could have a history that would reach back 4,000 million years is an entirely modern understanding of what is possible. And in this discovery of the archaic, from paleontology, uh, from uh, uh, archaeology, also comes an awareness that much of the world, until very recently, has remained archaic. That tribal structures set in place at the melting of the last glaciers are in place today in many parts of the world with very complex social structures, religious beliefs, theories of polity, medicine, so forth and so on. But medicine, the key concept here, because these aboriginal societies that have kept the archaic toolkit, when we sort through that toolkit, There's more there than fish poisons and abortificence and even contraceptives. What there are are psychedelic plants. And again, those of us who have grown up with the assumption of psychedelic plants or even synthetic psychedelic chemistry tend to forget that this has all arrived on the plate of Western civilization in the last hundred years. You know, mescaline was characterized in 1888. Uh, Harmine in 1928. LSD discovered in 37. Not really known uh, until um, after the war. Psilocybin, 53. DMT, 56. Everything made illegal in 66. These things uh, are very new. On the, uh, in the catalogue of the artifactria that we have looted from cultures around the world. And because they are illegal, very little is known about them. The issues raised in the 1960s around these substances have never been settled. The, the use of them was savagely repressed. The government proved it could repress but it never was then able to deliver on the only excuse there is for government repression, which is the prosecution of a reasonable social agenda. That never happened. Uh, But more is at stake here than American civilization and its attitude towards psychedelics. The whole of the 20th century is characterized by this nostalgia for the archaic, it begins when Picasso brings African masks to Paris in 1910. It even begins earlier than that, when Impressionism deconstructs the photographic realism of late Romanticism and instead turns everything into shimmering light and surfaces. Certainly, Pataphysics and Dada, the precursors of Surrealism, were you know attacks on the... The sensibilities of the petty bourgeois for sure, but also a breaking up of the expectations of linear time uh, that had been created in the West since the industrial uh, revolution generally a whole bunch of things we don't have to dwell on them but jazz, abstract expressionism, sexual permissiveness, rock and roll um, body piercing house dancing, all of these things are characterized by a nostalgia for the archaic. And I think that this means we have come full circle. Merselian said this, actually. He said, 20th century culture has the character of a terminal delirium. As we sink toward cultural death, The last 20,000 years of cultural endeavor are swirling around the deathbed in a kind of hallucinogenic storm. We publish every religious text of every cult of every persuasion anywhere in the world, all ruins must be excavated, all artifacts must be reconstructed and studied in one last final frantic effort to make sense of it all as we sense ourselves sinking toward, and that's the question, toward what? Toward the yawning grave, toward the fate we probably richly deserve for the way we've conducted our culture over the past 5,000 years? Or, you know, is there the equivalent of a deus ex machina in this story? Is the U.S. cavalry uh, disguised as friendly extraterrestrials or gods avenging angelic horde about to sweep into this sad story and uh, help us out? Well, I sort of come down halfway in between there. I think that built-in to our story is the structure of nature, which, believe it or not, supports us in the incredibly peculiar endeavor of history. Because I think nature is a, uh, an engine for the production and conservation of novelty. I mean, if uh, I, at the risk of repeating myself, this is the idea which if you don't understand the mathematics, if you don't take the drugs, if you can't, nevertheless, here's what's being pushed here. The idea that nature conserves novelty and that this is what evolution of higher plants and animals and culture and 20th century life is about. We are the heirs multiplied in our wealth many times of a continuous bequeathment of novelty from one generation to another over vast amounts of space and time. And what is important about this is that it changes fundamentally how you think about being a human being. Because if you are embedded in secular scientism, the official faith of the realm, then you know that we are just a kind of animal, that our planet is not particularly unusual, that our star is typical, our galaxy is ho-hum, and everything is just terribly dreary, uniform, and uninteresting, and you should just be damn glad that there's anything at all to talk about. In other words, the conclusion of modernity is that any meaning life may have has to be, in the phrase of the existentialist, conferred. That means you put it on it. You say you're important, and that makes you important, You say you have hope, and that means you have hope. But the idea that there is any external source making any comment on your being at all is thought to be a childish 19th century notion now transcended by our more sophisticated reading of things, etc., etc. I don't believe this. I believe uh, that... uh, The idea that nature conserves novelty moves the human enterprise back to where it was a thousand years ago in terms of making what we do important, making our acts of brutality and kindness to each other somehow more important than simply the importance that existentialism would confer upon these things, that somehow we are actors in a, in a drama that uh, requires a certain kind of denouement or it fails in some sense and the basis for such an idea is the uh, datum that is provided by the psychedelic experience and so then this is a big domain for controversy because if you have the psychedelic experience in your inventory of experiences you are able to make a different model of reality than if you lack it it's just like somebody who's never been to paris you know if they don't have that experience there's a whole set of triangulations on being human that are going to be sort of hard to carry out for them and this is not, for me, a metaphor. It's it's much stronger. Because uh, I don't think that what the shaman is doing is something metaphorical or analogical or allegorical. What the shaman is doing is something real, that is couched in a language that we find difficult to understand, Uh, we, well, and and here is the notion, that, uh, that consciousness seeks the shape of its vessel, that it is like water. You know, you put water in a wine glass and it takes that shape. You put it in a champagne flute, and it takes that shape. Consciousness takes the shape of its vessel. And consciousness, in the long, long period when we were much more at prey to the forces of nature, consciousness evolved into a threat detection device of superb sensitivity, so that approaching saber-toothed tigers, so forth and so on, were anticipated and dealt with Uh, in a secure, reassuring, dark environment under the influence of psychotropic plants, the structures of consciousness put in place by cultural programming are dissolved, melted, eliminated, and in silent darkness the mind recasts itself in its own natural geometry, unconfined by three-dimensional space and time. And this is, I stress, not a metaphor. This actually happens. This is how it is that shamans can perform apparent miracles. Shamans, recall, uh, predict weather predict game movement cure illnesses and have an uncanny insight into the secret business of the social group like who's sleeping with who who stole the chicken that who beat who up in the garden that kind of thing well i maintain that this is real this super ordinary knowledge and it is gained by virtue of unfolding the shamanic imagination in a in a super space, a cultural super space that is uh, higher dimensional, not in a metaphorical sense, but as a mathematician would use the term. Uh, if you had an, a profound insight into the future, then... Next week's weather would not pose a problem for you to discuss. Where the game is going to be would be a fairly transparent matter. And uh, who's sleeping with who, this sort of thing. This would simply be present, apparent, on the surface of things, yet hidden to ordinary members of the culture because of cultural programming. Well, the fascination then with psychedelics in our culture is I think a desire for this same end, to glimpse the end of the historical process and to transcend the creode of cultural programming that has been so deeply worn in us since the Renaissance. So, And this, then, is the culmination. I'm bringing it around here full circle, believe it or not. This, then, is the culmination of this archaic impulse. At the center of the archaic impulse is the shaman. At the center of the shaman's understanding of the world is the boundary-dissolving experience of psychedelics. And what is interesting to me is I see a strange fractal parallelism in all of this. History is like psychedelic experience. It is, uh, you know, it begins on the plains of Africa. History, natural, ordered, dynamic, given. And then it's as though we drift into a dream, a dream of energy, a dream of conquest over each other, A dream of interaction with strange higher powers that trade in gnosis and lead us toward uh, sacrifice and revelation and the codification of human rules for our societies and magical insights into how to get to the side of the angels, so forth and so on. And this builds and builds. It becomes not merely slightly strange, mud cities, priests, slavery, it becomes very strange. You get Greek mathematics, you get Roman science, you get the rise of world-ruling imperiums and an ever-elaborating technology that feeds in upon itself faster and faster and faster, imaging the human Faustian desire to go beyond itself somehow. And now, in the 20th century, you know we're over the top or into the fourth hour or something, because we can call down the energies that burn in the stars themselves, We primates, we monkeys, do this. We light the fires that burn at the very center of the stars that shine at night. This is an extraordinary um, feat of biology. I mean, it's not the feat of an ideology. It's the feat of biology that the stuff of protoplasm that runs on energies less than those of a triple flashlight battery Can hurl instruments outside the solar system, decode the DNA, so forth and so on. Well, what it is leading toward is an imaging of an, of this object in the imagination that has always been there, always driven our aesthetic concerns, our art, our poetry, you know, dimly glimpsed in orgasm, glimpsed in, uh, Uh, psychedelic ecstasy, fits of aesthetic uh, creation, so forth and so on. And now, at the end of this process, and with incredible speed, all the secrets are being told, all the veils are being lifted, all the doors are being opened. It's that deathbed delirium that Merciliad was talking about so um that's all i wanted to say about that it's uh, the part you needed to hear is that nature conserves novelty that in that enterprise history has been created and in the furtherance of that enterprise history will be transcended and soon and the way to get with the program is to anticipate it by following the shamans into hyperspace. That's what I was trying to say. Can I ask you a question? Sure. What did you mean by we're at a historical end? Well, that you cannot imagine, sitting where we are tonight, uh, that a, a phrase like 500 years from now or 100 years from now it has absolutely no meaning in 1800 you could speak of a hundred years from now but the accelerated rate of change is now so intense that there are that we are confronted with a number of trends that when you ex, when you extend the curve out 30 years mm-hmm. it reaches infinity so a continuation of the historical process of, as we've known it for several thousand years is impossible to imagine. Is that all you want to say, is yeah, ask I a question? Okay, yeah, I, I always, when I was a little kid, I used to hear about the end of the novel, not a novel, the novel, and also the end of the symphony. And I just thought this was such a hard concept to grasp. And then, you know, I've made my living out of the end of history, which when most people hear that phrase for the first time, it's a mind-boggling concept. I mean, how can history end? Isn't it the stuff of which reality is made? Turns out, no, it's just a funny kind of notion. It was invented by Germans, and uh, <laughs> it'll be put away by them, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it's interesting how resistant people are to the concept of the possibility of the end of the world, as though that violates some innate order of things, when it's perfectly obvious that it's a fairly academic discussion compared to the absolute certainty of the end of your world, (laughs) you know? You being you, me, and everybody. I mean, the end of the world is built in. It's just this technicality about whether it happens to everybody when it happens to you or it just happens
0: to you. That we're, in a we're in hyperspace.
1: Yeah, we're in hyperspace. I've been heralding it for years and I'm just about to the place where I'm willing to say it is happening. You know, It's not coming. It's like the little girl says in Poltergeist: "They're here, <laughs> they're here." <laughs> but it's an appalling thing to grapple with. Does G- it believe you, or challenge you. Or- okay. Well, believing me, I—if you know me well—I don't believe me. I—I <laughs> I hate ideology, and I think the way to keep it light is to not believe. I will attempt to convert you in the course of these meetings to all kinds of things that I don't believe. Uh, I figure, you know, I could throw it off. You can throw it off. Uh, I think ideology is poisonous. We're not trying to figure out the best thing to believe. What we're trying to do is not believe anything and somehow have a return to the direct empowering of our of common sense and common senses. You know. That's why uh, the psychedelic experience is so central to me, because it's an experience you can say that it's like kundalini yoga, or you can say that it's like a visitation from the Virgin Mary, but what it is, is an experience. And then I can tell you, well, based on my psychedelic experiences, I think the world is thus and so, but you can take the, scientific, the psychedelic experience and leave what I think about it or what anybody thinks about it behind. It's an experience, and in terms of figuring out what the world is it's it's indispensable i think that we are all infantilized by a cultural machinery i like to say culture is not your friend it's not your friend all this stuff it infantilizes you because it provides answers you know, the culture has answers. Work hard. Make money. Uh, be a good Christian Jew, Muslim, whatever. And uh, culture isn't, is, is not your friend. The psychedelic experience is a primary recasting of experience. It's as profound as sex. It's like sex. In fact, they would make sex illegal if they could for the very reasons that psychedelics are illegal. It's just they can't, you know, it's in the bone. They can't get it out of us. But it is that same kernel of chaos that drives them crazy, uh, that, that, that makes it very hard to uh, control a social agenda. Well, anyway, not to rave about that, but, yeah. Speaker, speak of that movement of evolution. Um, I think it's something that's happening to a lot of people, and it's a movement forward for all of us. So I'm just interested in, you know, hearing
0: more about that and speaking some things and whatever.
1: Good. You mean by you have your foot in both worlds that you're interested in shamanism and you are somehow involved in technology?
0: <laughs> actually I'm very involved in shamanism and I'm finishing up my um, doctorate in you know, working with computers and doing all that uh-huh. um, and it's much easier to
1: be involved in shamanism and multidimensional reality and to move in those worlds than it is to do the academic thing. Well the net is sort of like the shamanic other place uh, and getting more so I think because it's a, it's a domain defined by language and the, f- the faith of magic is that the world is made of language. That's really the difference, the fundamental difference between science and magic is that science believes there is something, what Whitehead called stubborn facts, which need to be illuminated. And the magician knows that the, the, the world is being created by linguistic intent. Yeah, you know, I think the more I think about it, that the, the challenge is not to fight the people who have bad ideas, which is ordinarily what politics is about. You fight the Nazis or the somebody or others. But to have good ideas. Because the people who have bad ideas are going to be defeated by the circumstances you don't have to do anything. There will come a moment when, if you have good ideas, they will plead with you to help bail them out. First, of course, they're going to try all the bad ideas. I mean, my notion of progress is it's, it's, it's when good things occur for all the wrong reasons, If we can find the wrong reasons, the right things will occur. Um, You know, something like the Soviet Union (coughs) falling apart. It fell apart for all the wrong reasons. Uh, Similarly, uh, much of the the future, I think, is going to be ruled by this principle. They don't do things out of altruism. They do things uh, in order to serve a system already in place. That's why when you try to think of solutions, think of things that will simultaneously enrich people. You know, if we could find a way to make self-interest and community interest the same thing, we'd have it like that, because everybody would pitch in on that program. Yeah. Yeah, well, you mentioned you mentioned science fiction. I Yeah, I would certainly... Confess that science fiction was the entry-level drug for me uh, It's so many people have an aversion to it and all science fiction is is a permissioning of Imagination it's the how would it be if clause worked out to its ultimate and uh, And it also teaches you, you know, the way in which the future exceeds the wildest imagining. I mean, I remember Robert Heinlein, when he published his book, Universe, uh, the people on their way to the moon have slide rules, which they're always whipping out and fiddling with, because he got part of it right, but he didn't get that part right. And all of those futures in science fiction are simply, in a sense, models, modeling for what works and what doesn't. Uh, I, I think, you know, Melville said reality outruns apprehension. I'm not sure he meant what I think he means, but certainly in the 20th century, reality has outrun apprehension. Things are far weirder than anybody anticipated. Even the weirdest among us have been overreached. I remember when I was 16, I read William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, mostly for pornographic reasons, but it seemed to me it was like the ravings of a diseased intellect. It was so unhinged. Now, it reads like the sober musings of a concerned social critic. So that's what we were able to achieve in, in 30 years. Um, well, before I let you go this evening, um, I, I should self-promote briefly. Um, the Invisible Landscape is back in print. It was published originally in 1975, and had a very small print run then. Uh, at the time it was said that it was 50 years ahead of its time. So now I guess we're down to 30 years ahead of its time. In some ways this is, this is our best book. This is not our easiest book or our most friendly book. This is the most uncompromising. Uh, because it's our stab at immortality, basically. I mean, this is our principia, our prolegomena, our... And uh, it's also our most... Uh, and the use of our, meaning my brother and myself, uh, the most speculative of all the books. I think the the... Bookstore tried to stock everything, and what everything means is this book and Food of the Gods, which is a a book defending and reviewing the history of psychedelic use and suggesting that it was an evolutionary force shaping consciousness suggesting and defending the fairly radical idea that if it weren't for psychedelic plants, there would be no conscious monkeys on this planet. That, in fact, this is the missing chemical trigger in the environment that can account for the explosive uh, evolutionary speed with which the human brain established itself on the scene. We can talk more about that tomorrow. Uh, Also a book of essays called uh, The Archaic Revival, which I talked about The Archaic Revival tonight, although I'm not sure I used that phrase. And then, if you're not into didacticism, uh, a book that I wrote called uh, True Hallucinations, which is a travel-adventure science fiction narrative except that every word is true (laughs) and I will stand behind it and defend it Being that every word is true, no claim is made that the dead walk or that Lemuria will rise from beneath the sea, but small violations of natural law are very important in the real world, not if you're Carlos Castaneda or something, but in in my world, even small violations of physics get real celebration around the dinner table. Also, they have some copies. Those of you who are more practically minded and perhaps more impecunious than some of the rest of us might want to look at Psilocybin Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide. And, uh, then you can, uh, you can produce a dependable supply of genetically certified pure psilocybin and delight your roommates and uh, <laughs> and perhaps pay some of your bills as well. <laughs> and I think that covers the waterfront. I'm at a place in my life which is sort of gratifying and sort of not, which is that all everything I've ever written is now in print. The problem with that is, Surely, within a matter of months, one or another will slip out of print, and then I will have that unmistakable feeling that I'm over the top. Um, But it will be true, so what's the point of evading it? I mean... The 20th century has seen too much of occult, arm-waving, theosophical pontification and burning-eyed visionaries with this, that, or the other brand of hokum that they're peddling. Uh, The rules of evidence are clear, and whether you are asserting that you were told by a flying saucer or you decoded the scripts of Lemuria or what it is you're claiming, the rules of evidence are clear and it must make sense. And, it, uh, you know, the truth does not require your belief. The truth is perfectly capable of sustaining itself no matter what you think about it. And the attitude somehow that we must be careful with the truth and not bang on it to see if it can take the heat is wrong. In that, I'm thoroughly scientific uh and the best ideas can survive this it's only it's only the uh, the the somehow compromised or not thoroughly thought through or yes the half baked they can't survive this test but the truth can and in the spiritual and intellectual marketplace of the present there's nothing at all wrong with uh, uh applying a a sophisticated eye to the ideological hardware and software that's being touted. Yeah. Something like
0: that, that we think it's a metaphor. I just wanted to get more specific on what you meant, like the language that shamans use or
1: something like that. Well, for example, um, if, um, you know, quantum physics has a whole bunch of terms which appear transparent and trivial. Spin, charm, uh, and yet, and because these are words in common speech, but charm has nothing to do with charm, and beauty has nothing to do with beauty. Uh, Beauty being another one of these quantum mechanical terms. So the anthropologist goes to the shaman and says, you know, tell me what's the deal, with how you're relating to the cosmos, and the shaman says something like, well, we can cure people through the power of ancestor spirits. Cure people through the power of ancestor spirits. Each one of these words is an abyss of ambiguity that is culturally defined and very hard to communicate, uh, the anthropologist tiles over the Witoto or Muinani or Warane intent with a European understanding of what these things mean, cure, ancestor, spirit, and then goes away with the idea that these people are naive and childish and full of quaint, primitive notions that positivism has allowed us to transcend, no real communication has taken place. That's why the only way, I mean, I'm not even sure anthropology is a worthwhile enterprise in in the I-will-go-and-describe-other-cultures style, but if it is, then you have to go somehow inside and that means, you know, certainly a lifetime of relationships, certainly a complete assimilation of the language, and certainly if there are uh, drugs to be taken, ordeals to be had, uh, unusual sexual or social arrangements that are expected, you have to submit to that um, or, you, or you're not... Uh, You can't understand it. Language is a strange thing. It's very localized. You almost could say that... I mean, think about it. It's a weird thing. You are born out of the body of woman somewhere on the planet. And very much the grid coordinates of where you are born will determine your reality forever after because you imbibe a local language you immediately begin to learn Swedish or English or Chinese. And then, though you may travel great distances and live among very different people, uh, in a sense you always see through the linguistic lens the very parochial linguistic lens of the place where you originated. I've made a number of trips to the Amazon when I first started going uh I, I was a, basically a professional butterfly collector on one level. And uh, to me, the Amazon just seemed immensely variegated in its greenness. You know, it was an unending thing of green. Later, when I went back with people getting their PhDs under Schultes in the botany department at Harvard and lived cheek by jowl, For weeks with these guys, I quickly learned plant families, genera, taxonomic terms, all kinds of genetic terms, and as I could pour this language into the greenery, it became endlessly discussable and hence, you know, interesting and defined for me intellectually. Yeah, I mean, it's very much part of my intellectual story that I am... I basically make my living by speaking English, but my, my relationship to languages is a, a long and sad one. Uh, you know, I've spent years and years in South America and Mexico, and my Spanish is atrocious. Uh, I spent a long time in Indonesia, learned practically none. My career as an Asian scholar and Asian art historian was ended when I went to Nepal and studied Tibetan and realized, you know, that I was never going to get it. And somewhere along the way, I failed Italian, German, uh, Hebrew, uh, I think that's about it but uh, it, it's it's some kind of weird thing where it just doesn't take in me. and so my only option has been to explore English as though it were many languages you know uh, scientific English, Chaucerian English, the English of art criticism, the English of scientific journalism, on and on and on. And so it's a kind of a, a a response to not being able to assimilate the other. I think people who speak many languages, uh, I mean, I'm more in awe of that than almost anything else.
0: Geological slash botanical information relating to psychedelics. Uh...
1: No, my, my uh, I mean, I have only two original ideas, as far as I can tell, and one of them we'll get to later, and the other one you have stumbled into, uh, like an ant, into an ant-lion's pit. Um, uh, You see, there's great kudos, (laughs) there's great kudos to be had to anyone who can convincingly explain in within the confines of darwinian theory as modified by molecular genetics how in the world the human thing got going and and what could have possibly happened because the the orthodox theory of evolution is just Splendid for handling the evolution of grasses, the emergence of prairie dogs and uh, uh, elephants and bee colonies and so forth. It's the human presence on the planet that is so jarring to biology because uh, we emerged very, very quickly. Uh, uniquely among all species on the planet, Homo sapiens sapien, the double-thinking man, emerged within a million and a half years, and this and it involved a doubling in brain size from the previous model. And this has been called by uh, Lumholtz, who's one of the doyens of orthodox evolutionary biology the most explosive expansion of a major organ of a higher animal in the entire fossil record. And it's a great embarrassment to evolutionary theory for that reason, but the embarrassment is deepened when you realize that this particular organ that we're talking about is not the pancreas of a horseshoe crab or the chewing parts of a beetle. It's the organ which produced the theory of evolution, It's the human brain. So the organ which produced the theory cannot be accounted for by the theory. This is a great embarrassment. And the problem is time. Given 50 million years, the brain could have doubled along the lines of natural selection, random mutation. But it happened in a million and a half. So there was some extraordinary selective pressure on these hominids. And if you could figure out what it is or what it was, you would be carried on the backs of your comrades to a Nobel Prize in uh, biology, presumably. And so then, of course, people have tried, but it's not easy. The latest theories have to do with the fact that we uh, may have needed to develop immense hand-eye coordination to throw things at large animals.
0: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now, if you're an old-timer here in the Salon, you probably know where Terence is going with this. But just as an irreverent aside here, looking at the current state of what is laughingly called human civilization, well, throwing things at large animals seems to be the main thing that we're still doing, so maybe that theory of brain development is correct after all. Now, I don't have to comment about this at any length, but I suspect that you were thinking the same thing that I was when Terence was talking about how half-baked ideas wouldn't survive. Perhaps his unhappy example of how pushing the envelope of hope past the edges of the possible can uh, lead you into a dead end uh, should be something we take uh, into consideration ourselves. In other words, if you're going to make a wild prediction, it would be advisable maybe to set the date of the event a few centuries after the end of your life. (laughs) That way nobody's going to still be alive who even remembers that your prediction didn't come about. Now that I think about it, uh, well, maybe that's the difference between a prophet and a crackpot. Prophets take a longer view. (laughs) And no, I don't think that Terence was a crackpot. He just got too entangled with his own dreams, I think. And even though I didn't buy into his time wave theory, I do think that buried in there somewhere, there still remains a seed of some great insight. I just have no idea what that could be. One of Terence's riffs in this talk uh, has caused me to see the history of the prohibition of psychedelic substances in a new light. It wasn't anything that I didn't already know, but I'd never thought of it in the way it now appears to me after Terence recited the year in which some psychedelic substances were first synthesized. Mescaline, 1919, LSD, 1938, DMT, 1956, psilocybin, 1959, and then it was all made illegal in 1966. I'd never really thought about it in such stark terms before, but in less than 50 years, chemists discovered how to synthesize some of the most powerful mind-altering and enhancing chemicals that we know of, and almost immediately, the existing power structures made them all illegal, thus eliminating essentially all professional research into these important substances. Obviously, the owners of the status quo are going to do whatever it takes to keep a lid on the consciousness that flows from the use of these plants and chemicals. But speaking of Terrence's riffs, I'm as curious as you are about what he's going to say next in this June 1994 workshop. So I'm going to sign off, get a few other things done around here, and and then I'm going to get the next part of this workshop out to you in a new podcast before this week's end. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be careful out there, my friends.